Welcome to The Jam Pact, an independent podcast inspired by the campaigns led by the WI. My name is Rosa, and in this episode, I'm going against one of the most popular and enduring WI campaigns. SOS for Honeybees has been a key campaign since 2009. On its website, the NFWI says that honeybee decline is a major threat to biodiversity. When I came across an article suggesting that this might not be true, I contacted the Bumblebee Trust to find out more. I'm joined by Jill Perkins, the CEO of the Bumblebee Trust, to find out about biodiversity and bees and to ask if, in her opinion, have we been getting things wrong? We started, though, by talking about Jill's happy place, spending time outside among the wild bees. Oh, it feels like I can breathe and I can uh, get out in the natural world, which is where I really belong. And it restores my soul after a very long week. And when I walk out around uh, the lanes and on the seawall, I live by the sea, I can just take deep breaths and all that stress in your shoulders goes away. And it just makes you feel connected and grounded. Bumblebees are such iconic, charismatic creatures. They're so familiar in all our gardens. They're big, fluffy, bumbling, just gentle creatures. And that buzz that we describe in the trust as the sound of summer, you know, that long droning buzz. uh, I mean, that's what's not to love about that. And, you know, as they move from flower to flower, just beautiful creatures. There's um, been a lot in recent years about honeybees and honeybees in particular have been kind of ambassadors in a way for species extinction but you're you're not honeybees you're bumblebees and there's a little bit of a conflict I think that people have become slowly aware of. Yeah that it is frustrating so in the UK there's three bees three types of bees so there's honeybees uh, one species and then there's bumblebees 24 species and then there's solitary bees 220 plus species nobody really knows bumblebees and solitary bees are what we call our wild bees so they live uh, naturally in the natural world honeybees we we tend to call domesticated they're like livestock so honeybees are not at risk of extinction they're not in decline and they're managed by us humans So it's a little bit like, and this is probably the contentious element, it's a little bit like keeping chickens or cows or pigs there. They actually produce a product that we we manage. See, I didn't know this about honeybees until um, I saw someone on Twitter who I follow and um, she she grows wildflowers in our in our area like she's taken over a road size and it's it's just like this wild mess like for all kinds of animals and there's like foxes and hedgehogs and butterflies and um you know you can see it see it change and it's it's not a pretty thing but that's what's really great about it it's like proper messy wild and we're all quite proud of it the people who who live around there and someone commented on her um, one of her pictures and referred to honeybees as livestock and that there's a problem with this livestock taking over areas. And that was quite jarring to, to read that because I thought 
there's a whole thing here that I am clearly just not aware of. And I, I'd been under the impression that there was like this mass collapse of honeybees and this was uh, a real emergency. But then someone else comes in who clearly knows something that I don't. And mm. I've, I, how has this passed so many people by? You know, all bees, let, let, let's start off with all bees are important and all bees are important pollinators. You know, we, it, pollination is worth to this country about 700 million pounds. It's a free service us humans cannot do without. But we've all read about the biodiversity loss uh, in this country, which is pretty severe. And it is, you know, the, the honeybees don't add to our biodiversity. You know, when, when we see that slogan, save the bees, and there's honeybees, mm. it's a little bit like saying, let's save the birds, I'm going to keep chickens. It's back to that analogy again. So they don't actually enhance our biodiversity. In some areas, we've got two bumblebees which are at risk of extinction. Now, if we um, put uh, honeybee hives in these small isolated communities of where this bee still survives, there's a chance that the honeybee would outcompete it for floral forage uh, and that bee would be even more at risk of extinction. So in some cases, not in all cases, putting honeybee hives into uh, natural areas can have a detrimental effect to our wild native bees, which are at risk of extinction and uh, decline. The, so this interview actually is kind of going against like one of the WI campaigns actually, because the podcast is inspired by the WI campaigns, but one of those campaigns is SOS for honeybees. And so WI's, um, it's quite a popular talk like to get people in to talk about honeybees and they're really interesting animals, like how they organize and, you know, they're quite charming, like with how they communicate and there's a lot of folklore and history around them. Um, but bumblebees, people don't get people in to talk with in such enthusiasm. Like why, why well, do you, you think need that? to get me in then? I will talk with enthusiasm about bumblebees. They're the ones that need help. <laughs> We're running a campaign at the moment called Be the Change. Uh, and it's a, it's a whole uh, year long campaign and it gives people micro actions that they can do to help bees. And it, it's a simple thing like deadheading your flowers so they keep flowering throughout. It's, it's talking to children, it's making them aware of the connection that is lost and that is between our food, what's on our plates and how it is produced. When I go into school, see those lovely children sat there and I say, what do you know about bees? They know two things, Rosa. Do you know what those two things are? Honey. Yes. They sting you. Thank you. So <laughs> that is all people, children know about bees. And so I, I say to them, who likes pizza? Yeah, 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 I like pizza. Who likes tomato ketchup? Yeah, 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 I like tomato ketchup. And then I say, well, without bumblebees, you wouldn't have those because only bumble, bumblebees is the only insect that can pollinate tomatoes. In the flat, the tomato flower, the pollen is held really tightly in the anther. There's no nectar in a tomato flower, and, but just the pollen. 
And the only way to get that pollen out of that anther is to vibrate. And a bumblebee has a massive muscle in its thorax area. And that muscle can vibrate at exactly 400 hertz, which when it clamps on that anther will open it and release the pollen. Only bumblebees can do that. Bumblebees underpin our whole soft fruit industry. People don't understand that we import 70,000 boxes of commercially farmed bumblebees into this country every year to support our soft fruit industry. That's raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, tomatoes. Can you say that again. That's, that's astonishing. What number is that? So we import 70,000 boxes. 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 Those are nests of bumblebees into this country every year to service our software. And how many bees are in each nest? Probably about two or three hundred in each nest, something like that. And they're taken into these massive great glass houses and polytunnels to do their work because only they can do their work. That's that's fascinating that I had no idea that we were shipping in bumblebees to do No, that. they're absolutely vital. Nobody knows that because, again, I come back to that connection between the food that we eat and how it is produced. And that connection is mostly reliant on our wild bees, not only bees, on our wild bees. 75% of the crops that are grown globally have to, have, have to be pollinated. And it is all about the food. It's not about some sugary substance that you spread on your toast. It's, a, it's about how we are have a healthy diet. If you think about the way your garden looks, the colours, the plants, you wouldn't get that without pollination. The way our whole countryside looks, you wouldn't get that without pollination. It is one of the most essential ecosystem services in the world. And yet we've taken it all for granted. And all we've done is focus on honey. And do you think that is why we don't care about bumblebees as much? Because we don't get like that. I can see in like the supermarket shelves or if I go to a gift shop, there might be things with beeswax in them like lip balm or candles and so on. So there's more of a connection that like I can hold this thing that is from the honeybees. And so there's the kind of absence of the bumblebee you go shopping in a grocer's yeah how many tangible things do you need to hold but there's not that reminder though is there because if if you don't well, there's know not that the education story. there's yeah. not that education rosa and that's what it's down to and that's what the trust is all about raising awareness of how important these creatures are and how vital they are to all of us and our livelihoods. See, this, this has given me ideas now. If WIs are listening and you, you want to get in on the bee campaign, maybe we could make some little little leaflets and we can slip them in the tomatoes and pizzas and say about Well, the one bees. supermarket is doing that. I am working with a supermarket and um, they've made what's called yappers uh, and they're little cardboard uh, signs that go on the, the vegetables all the way around and it might be on jam you know bumblebee made this or um, it might be on rapeseed oil you know honeybee uh, helped make this uh, and solid on apples it might be solitary bees helped like this you get solitary let's not forget solitary bees are other wild bees absolutely vital to our orchards solitary bees have got this wonderful hairy abdomen 
which means when they flip from flower to flower on the orchards, on the apple trees, they collect all the pollen on their hairy abdomen and, and take it to the next one. So, you know, they're, they're as vital as any bumblebee, but, you know, they don't get in the news as well. We have, a, we have a strap line, well, not a strap line, but we have a saying in the trust because you wouldn't believe the number of people we, we, who contact us, um, particularly corporates who want to sell their products through us, and it might be honey related. No hives, no honey, no hexagons. No hives, no honey, no hexagons. Our WI is actually called the Hive WI because we live in Beeston and it's the B yeah. thing. Well, you, need actually... to, you need to flex now to bumblebees. <laughs> You need to leave those honeybees by the door. They've had, you, you were right when you said they're culturally important. They've been, you know, thousands of years. Yes, they're, they're you know, I don't want to discredit honeybees. They're lovely creatures, but they're not at risk of extinction or decline. They're thriving. So you don't need to save them. Enjoy their products, enjoy the honey, but they're not at risk of extinction. You just don't need to save them. So why are bumblebees at risk of extinction? Mostly because of habitat loss. Since the Second World War, we lost 97% of our wildflower meadows. And that was the beginning of the decline. Everything went down to the production of food. And then you, we've in this UK, we've got a finite amount of land. We've got a growing population. We had agricultural intensification by necessity to feed ourselves. In the 1990s, part of agricultural intensification, we introduced neonicotinoids, which is a systemic insecticide that uh, is taken up through the plant and into the pollen and that had a sub-lethal effect on pollinators. You've got climate change and then our lovely imported bumblebees, if they escape out of the polytunnels and uh, glasshouses, they may contain pests and diseases that our native bumblebees don't have. So there's the spread of pests and diseases from imports. I don't know whether you remember the ash dieback situation when we were gaily importing ash whips from the continent, only to find they had a disease that now affects all our ash trees here. It looks exactly the same with imported bumblebees. Mm. I think we all have a connection to that now, yeah. like the importance not to bring in diseases. And so climate change is playing its role as well. So what would you want people to do about this? Is this something people can do in their gardens or does this need to be something we're making a lot more noise about? I think we, it, it is down centrally to education and for people to learn, learn about the difference between the bees in this country, what they do and how important they are to our food production. I think that's important that's the important thing um, so we at the trust we do a lot of uh, awareness raising we do a lot of bumblebee id training so people can go out and start learning to identify bumblebees uh, we do tons on gardening as i said earlier our, our, our campaign at the moment be the change really important gives you lots of easy micro actions that you can take that will help the bees got a fabulous online tool on our website completely free called Be Kind and it has over 700 of the best bee friendly flowers mm. on there and you can score your garden for bee friendliness and that'd be a great challenge for WI members uh, you could set up a league table this year <laughs> score your garden for bee friendliness and then you can 
increase your garden for bees by growing the right flowers at the right time, making sure everything's flowering throughout their flight season, uh, and then rescore it the next year and see who's got the most bee friendly garden. Yeah, well, definitely turn that into a competition. That would be fun. I think um, I'm, I'm remembering this interview I did yesterday, actually, with um, uh, Pam Warhurst from Incredible Edible. And they grow fruit and vegetables in, in public places. Um, we were talking about how, you know, food is like the catalyst for them. Um, and there's this this bigger problem for her. It's kind of you know the the right to land and how we organize and so on. Whereas with the bees, I feel like the bigger problem is we've we've lost that sense of connection to all the things that go on around the natural world that support our built world, like our human organized world. It actually depends on the non-human world for everything. Yeah. I completely agree. It is that connection with nature. Let's not play the blame game. But, you know, when I was a child, we went out. My father, you know, taught us about the natural world. We went for walks. We we got involved. We were there. It, it might just have been um, building dens or it might have been picking bluebells in the nearby wood. There, there was a sense of being at one with nature, not being afraid of it. And now there seems to be a, an increasing fear of nature. Um, don't get dirty. You know, it's dangerous to play outside. And the media is terrible at spreading fear. Two days ago, I go blackberrying for my mum. Uh, she's quite elderly, so she likes to make blackberry and apple crumble. So I pick some blackberry for us. And, and she, she says, oh, you must really be careful picking blackberries. I've read in the paper that this woman got pricked by a, black, a blackberry uh, bramble. Uh, it went septic and she's lost two fingers. And I said, mum, how long have we been blackberrying? You know, all our lives, centuries before. How many stories have you heard about people losing fingers and getting septis from a, a bramble thing. I mean, that's just such a classic example. Not a great story about the blackberries are out. Look at the food that you can make, you know, the muffin, blackberry muffins or apple crumble, whatever. No, none of that. Just oh, don't touch those blackberries, you might mm. die. There is a fear being generated or have been fear generated about nature i don't know why i i don't know how but we've lost a generation you know my big dream i had to do a funding application um i'm doing funding applications all the time in the charity and i had to uh consider what my big dream was and i sat and thought about it for a long time and you know i thought about well when we when we're young we we go to school you know to get to get a good education uh, because a good education will give you choices and a good job and you'll earn good money. And the there's a value associated with having a good education and a good job. I would like children to come out of school with the value of protecting and conserving nature, that they understand how important it is for their own survival and for our survival, so that we have not just the value of earning money, but we have the value of protecting nature. Massive dream. When, when you go into schools, what values do you perceive being communicated? I, I, think, I think we 
pick up on values, not by someone saying this is the value, but no. through the way we live and the expectations, values are communicated and in how our environments are built and mm. what people just expect us to do. Like what what are children picking up on there, do you think? Gosh, that's a that's quite a deep question. And I, I'm only in schools for a short amount of time. But but I I think schools themselves are driven to provide children with very tight curriculum based lessons. There's no freedom just to to say, okay, kids, we're just gonna go and play outside now. You know, everything is very tightly drawn. There's no space for any creativity. So I think it's, it's, if I look at it negatively, it's that children have lost the space to be creative, to learn in their own ways. I think it's very prescriptive in schools mm. now. I don't blame the schools for that. It's just how it seems to be. I suppose what comes to my mind when you say that is that it's very goal orientated. So if you then step into the supermarket, your goal is to you know get the food but that creative mindset is what helps you see all all the things that have led to that food being there yeah very well put the relationship to bees um how do how can that bring us into a relationship with wider nature the the non-human world they're a fantastic vehicle to learn about so many different things, not just about pollination. We re- when we go into schools, we, we talk about electrostatic electricity. So, you know, when you rub a balloon on your head and the hair sticks out, that charge is the same on a bumblebee's furry body. So you've got a pos- positive and negative charge. So you can use a bumblebee. It's just a simple example in a science lesson about static electricity. Um, and that gets you to know about the creature as well. You know, they have a, a brain the size of a grain of salt, like a poppy seed. And wow. the, the things that they can do, you know, can, they can fly in a dead straight line, even with a 30 mile an hour crosswind. So you can do a lot of work on vectors and, um, you know, they can, they can carry their own body weight in pollen. There's so many different aspects of life that you can you can use the bumblebee as a vehicle for learning and I think it's that uh, you know I use the love word if you learn to love this creature if you can learn to understand and not be scared of it then that you're halfway there to having that reconnection with nature on a wider scale. What drew you to bumblebees as opposed to other wild animals? Well, to be honest, first and foremost, I was a botanist. Flowers for me and ecology, uh, that's what my degree was in. But flowers and bees evolved together. You can't have one without the other. But it was uh, flowers for me first. And how would you like to see the conversations change around talking about bees and conservation? I'd love people to know and understand the difference. That's the big one for me. And to learn about the different bees in this country. And then I think I'd like them to not be frightened of them. They rarely, bumblebees rarely sting. And honeybees likewise rarely sting. You'd have to be really vicious with them to to get them to sting. You know, I've been handling bumblebees for 10 years and I've never been stung. 
you know, had them on my hand. So I think it's learning about them, understanding how they work for us, how they provide that free service for us, the connection to food, uh, and to learn to love them and not be afraid of them. Do you think fear is is a really big thing for people I to do. go over and... Yeah. yeah, and it's generated by the media. It's not just about bees. The media will say there's some man-eating spider in your bath this month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, don't touch it. You'll you'll die from an abscess or something. Uh, the media really hate nature. I think. <laughs> Do you think climate change makes people more fearful of nature? Because we've we see ourselves as the the destroyers, and maybe it's best not to get involved. I think climate change is such a big thing. Sometimes we can feel completely powerless. You know, what can I do to stop us burning, you know, our houses on fire? What can I do, you know, with a teaspoon and a, of water? That's how it feels like sometimes mm -hmm. with our houses on fire. Uh, so there's a sense of powerlessness when we talk about climate change, which is not helpful. I think, again, like our Be The Change campaign, let's break it down into tiny, tiny things that we can all do. You know, I, I, I talk about things for bees. I say, why don't you in your weekly, daily shop buy one organic item? You know, we can't all go organic. It's quite expensive to do so. But just think if five million of us, how many members in the WI in the UK? I think it's something like 220,000. Just imagine if 220,000 people went out and bought one organic item in their shopping every week. The organic industry would flourish. And that's got to be a good thing for climate change mm. because we wouldn't be using pesticides. We wouldn't be uh, destroying the, uh, the water courses. Our soil would be so much healthier and it would sequester more carbon. That would be fantastic. And it's simple things like that. But it, it's, it can be overwhelming. So I say just take very simple steps. So about farming practices, yeah, and the pesticide use, that must be such a, a big thing that you, you look at with the Bumblebee Trust. Yes, we do. And there's a lovely organisation called Pesticide Action Network. And uh, obviously we work with the government and some of our colleagues in Bug Life on getting changes to the pesticide regulations. But we, I think the farmers have a really tough time. You know, they, as I said before, they've got a finite amount of land. They have to make a profit. They have to make a living, the same as us. There's a demand for their food that they produce because we want it. What makes it worse is that there's a cheap food culture. All of us consumers expect food to be cheap. It isn't. It's really expensive to, to um, produce. And then on top of that, a third of everything we buy, we throw away. Yeah. That's that morally, morally, morally incomprehensible. That the farmers do everything they can to produce food for us to eat, and then we throw it away. I read that if food waste was a country, then it would be one of the biggest polluters in the world. Like it would be in yeah. the top three. It, 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 I, 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 I cannot get my head around, you know, this, we've got all got freezers and fridges. You know, if I buy a loaf of bread, slice it up, put it in the freezer and just take out a slice when I need it. And, and I just wouldn't even conceive of throwing food away. So I think the farmers are up against it. And every farmer we've ever worked with is really keen to have wildlife on their farm 
keen as much as possible to be as biodiverse as possible, use integrated pest management, which is when you use bio management rather than spray pesticides. So we shouldn't ever bash the farmers. I think they've got a terrifically hard job to do. It's good to hear that sympathy towards them as well, because it it could be so easy to stereotype them as you know spraying pesticides around without a a thought no you have to you have to know how the industry works you have to be in there you have to be a farmer to really understand the pressures that they're under compared to the urban environment how does farming stack up as a threat because I think you know we pave concrete over everything now like where we (laughs) where, where we live like do you think maybe they're, they're equal in your mind or you know one is more of a threat than the other to, to bees but if we could only focus on one one thing like if if we wanted to organize a new campaign for example where would you oh, i'd focus on urban uh, focus on urban absolutely we've got a million hectares of gardens in this country Imagine if everybody grew bee-friendly flowers, make an amazing difference. If you went to your councils, we've got a a huge park up here. You went and lobbied your council and said to your council, could we put a strip of wildflower meadows along this part of the closely mown grass? If every council did that, if every council didn't mow during May, no mow May that the plant life, our colleagues at Plant Life, and we work very closely with Plant Life, Butterfly Conservation and Bug Life as, as collaborators. You know, just imagine if, you know, those verges weren't cut uh, and they provided food for our pollinators. No, urban without a question of doubt, urban. Yeah, the connection people have to their built environment. And I'm trying to avoid saying nature because it's kind of like as soon as you use the word nature, you're drawing a distinction between how we live as if we're also not natural. But we are part of nature, aren't we? When we're a species. Yeah, and the, the very house, dominant species. <laughs> yeah, like your your house, that is how your species makes its nest, basically. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're right, you draw, I think it's important to draw the distinction. But, you know, when, when we do see a lack of um, greenery or we're the only species that we can see in a week, I think that has a profound effect on... Yes. I do, on our, our health and well-being. It, it, it has been proven time and time and time again, tons of research and certainly through COVID as well, you know, how much nature and back to the restores our soul, restores our sense of well-being. It's so good for our health. What would you say to people who would just say, oh, it's only bees, you know, there's all this other stuff going on. And like... I'd ask them to empty their fridge of every <laughs> item that is pollinated. What, what would be left if we did do that? Uh, probably some white bread because that's wheat and that's wind pollinated. And probably, well, you don't keep tea in your fridge, but tea... Uh, but all your dairy products are reliant on pollinators. People think the cows just eat grass. They don't. The pastures are full of herbs, clover. That gives you the quality of the, the milk and keeps the cows healthy. Um, so you still need pollinators in pastures. So all your dairy products require pollination. You wouldn't get the quality of uh, or the quantity without um, in dairy products. So you'd have to get all your dairy products out, all your cheese and yogurts and milk. Um, yeah, you're probably left with tea and bread. 
tea and bread and that's it very, very unhealthy diet do you feel hopeful that things are improving yeah oh absolutely so the trust was formed in 2006 uh, and we've made massive strides you know in schools in communities through our projects you know we we collect data we're a science-based evidence-led charity the bumblebee conservation trust so we collect data because every year or every time and you may do this to me one year you may say how are the bees doing jill uh, and in order for us to know that our interventions are working uh, and that things are improving for bees, I need to collect data. So we've been collecting data on bees since 2010. So this is our 10th anniversary of our Bee Walk report, which you can find on our website, which answers that question. How are the bees doing? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm very positive. That's I have hear. to be because I run the Bumblebee yeah. Conservation <laughs> Trust. And if I said no, no, I'm really negative and down about it. For the last 10 years, we haven't been doing very well then. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it is kind of like you, you develop this expectation when you think about the environment because climate change for example is so big and so huge and everything seems to be getting worse and worse you know there is power on focusing on these little steps and little changes that we can do because it does contribute to the bigger picture yeah. do you think people can make a difference to climate change by looking on at bees definitely definitely as i said they're super vehicle uh, if you get to know them you know i i did a uh, a very speed networking last that was last night uh, where you just had three minutes to talk about your charity and at the end of my three minutes uh, one of the chaps on our group said bees are awesome and they are awesome and there's so many things that they you can learn through them I just you know yeah I think if people get to know bees they can at least understand the wider world, not just through pollination, but, you know, just gardening as well. And how that they can help all of our lives and our children's lives by just being nice and kind and understanding bees. Do you have a favourite bee? Yes, I do. So in the Peak District, there is a bee called the Bilberry Bumblebee. Uh, it's Bombus Monticola. Absolutely the most beautiful bee. If you go to the Peak District, look out and it's up on the heathlands obviously it's called bilberry because it likes the bilberry flowers um absolutely superb beautiful bee so yeah the bilberry bumblebee is my favorite oh well if i ever see one i'll think of you yeah <laughs> if we want to update the sos for honeybees campaign how would you update it so i don't want to drop the bees no keep with bees Maybe, maybe just uh, call it SOS for bees, because, you know, as I said, the solid, don't let, let's not ignore the solitary bees, but just have a, maybe have a focus each quarter or, or each third of the year, have a focus on one particular bee so that you cover all bees. You know, you can, you can do one third of the year on honeybees, one third on solitary bees, one third on bumblebees. That way you cover them all. What's one of your main worries about bees and how people are affecting them? I, I suppose my main worry is that people don't understand how their food is made. Yeah. I think it has to be that. You know, when do we ever look at that lovely salsa next to 
I don't know, cauliflower cheese or whatever, and you think, gosh, you know, what's gone into producing that that's on my plate? We've, we just take it for granted. And in that respect, the bees are taken for granted. Yeah. So just the connection to food that worries me, the loss of connection to food that worries me the most. Do you think that's a good way to reconnect as well? yes oh absolutely but we, we all love food don't we i know i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah but food is the way to reconnect people i think you can't really um talk to people about this without showing them you know the amount of food that they enjoy every day throughout the year to get them to understand because it is about yeah. that as you said the amount we take for granted and not seeing you know that creative vision that we lack from school days yeah do you have any closing thoughts or anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to tell people about it's really easy to join the bumblebee conservation Trust. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 25 pound a year <laughs> and if you want to save the world you can do that by becoming a member of the bumblebee conservation trust save 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 a bee save the world yeah yeah thank you that's a lovely strap line <laughs> <laughs> could we just change it like to say save a bumblebee save the world yeah save the bumblebee save the world <laughs> i'd like to put a bumblebee in everybody's heart Oh, that sounds nice, but kind of stressful. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe a heart in every bumblebee. That's the way around. Yeah, yeah. I think the WI has been amazing at getting members to think about bees and pollinators full stop. But Jill is probably right. We need to break away from hives, honey and hexagons and to see the bigger picture. I love how you can learn so much about the interconnectedness of our lives through bees. They don't just make food possible, they make it possible for humans to evolve and exist at all. I'll be putting together some images to share online and to print off for displays about bees at thejampactpod.com. And that's packed as in P-A-C-T. You can also find them on Twitter and Facebook. Get in touch to let me know if this interview has changed how you think about the campaign and give it a share if you liked it. Thank you for listening and here is a preview of the next episode with ecotherapist Mary Jane Rust. Then, but I felt that I was chasing her a bit. And then I noticed that there were two squirrels chasing around the tree <laughs> opposite. And so I, I smiled and I said, do you, maybe you feel a bit chased by me. And uh, she, she smiled because she knew what I meant. And we fell into silence again. And then for whatever reason, we both looked down at the same time and we saw a tiny spider had built a web between our shoulders. Wow. And it was an incredibly moving moment because somehow the disconnection in the silence and, the, and my attempts at connection, which really hadn't come to much, um, was then a bridge had been made by this tiny creature. And we didn't really say anything about it because we just both kind of knew this was an amazing affirmation 